Hello, this is Indra and you are listening to the I Bounce Back podcast. The binge eating disorder was an inability to just be with myself and love myself and nourish myself in a calm and relaxed way. So food was still always a way to escape feelings. It's a way to punish myself and then go, go numb. In today's episode, we are going to talk with Lisa Sergeis, who is a professor and certified hypnotist. She focuses on helping people live healthier and happier lives. Many things that she teaches others come from her own struggles and experiences. For a very long time, she has been fighting depression, anxiety, and severe eating disorder. She's an author of the book, Diary of a Fat Girl. This is episode 15, Lisa Sergeis, Overcoming Binge Eating with Self-Love. Eating disorders are generally an organizing principle to help a person feel in control. I had a very domineering mother and her parenting style involved a lot of trying to control what I consumed, whether it was something I watched, people I hung out with, or things that I ate. So she started me on a diet when I was five years old and um, out of rebellion, out of hunger, and out of anxiety, I learned to sneak eat. And when you're eating on the sneak in secret, um, you don't ever really feel full. It's it's kind of like I, I always felt like my body was waiting to pass out from the overconsumption. And so it began a binge eating disorder. You know, when I look back on it, sometimes I cry. I'm like, my goodness, where where did I ever find any kind of calm, peace, and acceptance? And those moments were very few. So, yeah, it was quite the feedback loop of um, trying to cope but hurting myself in the meantime. But did you have anyone who could listen to you and help you? Maybe, but they didn't make themselves known. I would pretend things were okay. I was so afraid of my mother um, kind of retaliating against me. So if I if I ever said anything like, like, you know, oh, my mother yells at me, they would confront my mother. Like, let's say it was my aunt doing it. You know, they'd confront her. My mother would deny it. And then she'd come back to me and punish me somehow for opening my mouth. How dare you tell people these lies about me? even though, of course, it was true. So I had very few allies. Um, I did have my teachers. So I got my validation through school, uh, which is why I have three college degrees <laughs> and a lot of student loan debt, uh, because that never leaves you. Wherever, wherever you receive your validation, uh, when it, whenever you receive your validation as a child, you kind of want to continue that. It's, it's, a, it's a habit. It lays the tracks. So my teachers would encourage me. Mm -hmm. But they never stopped the bullying. It was the 1970s. They just let bullies bully. They didn't step in. Very different than it is now. What kind of bullying it was? Well, let's see. It could be name calling, um, you know, knocking my books out of my hands. Uh, when I got to middle school, you know, one of them uh, just hit me repeatedly. And I wouldn't hit them back because I thought, well, if Jesus says... Um, turn the other cheek, then it would be wrong for me to strike back. Now, after a, a lifetime of 
a mother absolutely forbidding me to talk back or defend myself or, or hide from her. I forget what it's called, not Stockholm Syndrome, it's called learned helplessness. And so you figure, well, if I'm being hit, I must deserve it. And uh, eventually, if I just kind of cringe and bear it, eventually they'll stop. So there was those kind of beatings um, and name calling and intimidation and throwing spitballs and ice at me. You know, like when you look back, it's like, well, it wasn't going to kill you, but it sure is painful. Well, it affected your self-esteem probably tremendously. Yeah, it sure did. I felt like I deserved all my suffering. I just want to go back to your childhood. Can you explain why your mother put you on a diet when you were just five years old? I was slightly, and I mean slightly, overweight. So the pediatrician, very well-meaning, um, you know, they, they talk like scientists. So you put them on the scale and he'd be like, well, she's just slightly overweight for her uh, age category. And she says, well, what would I do about that? He's like, well, I don't know, make little changes, like um, to put her on skim milk. I think that's one of the opening lines in my book, Diary of a Fat Girl. I say it all started with the skim milk. And it just kind of spiraled into wanting me to be thin. Now, I was a little chubby. You couldn't even call me a fat kid, but I was a little chubby. I wasn't really allowed to play and be active. I had very few interactions with kids my age. I wasn't allowed to play outside because those kids, you know, the outdoor neighborhood kids, well, they're not good enough for me, for my daughter. Um, and I wasn't encouraged to be active. She wanted to keep me in the house to keep an eye on me. And, and she also had misophonia. Misophonia is when you're allergic to certain sounds. So I had to play silently, which is very hard. So you have to sit very still, not make any noise, and, you know, play with my dolls, but not move around too much. So that didn't help either. So there were many reasons. Because of her mood disorder, she wanted to be in control. She wanted me to um, only interact with people under her surveillance And because she was busy doing whatever she was doing, she needed me to be quiet. And having another person there would, would certainly disturb her. How was your binge eating disorder developing throughout the years? Well, you get more and more um, access to food, more ways to sneak eat, more ways to steal food from other people's houses and uh, eat in secret. Um, You know, if they had uh, a bake sale at school, you know, you, you you take the 25 cents you were given or whatever. Things were cheap back then. Um, and you hide some so you could have your own. Uh, and then, well, once I moved out of the house, well, then once I started to work and I had my own money, well, I mean, I could just go to the store and get uh, Entenmann's cakes or cookies or whatever. And then once I moved out, my I gained like over a hundred pounds in a year because I was free to eat whatever and whenever I wanted to. And it was my drug of choice, of course. And when you have a drug of choice, it's something you do every day. The moment you start feeling something, an emotion that you don't like. Uh, and so then it just, it escalated into um, an enormous amount of food. Did you also try to stay on a diet and 
at some point you would start binge eating or was it just like binge eating? It's It was a combination. I was always on a diet and always trying to cheat on that diet by binge eating. So it was a, it was almost like a binge purge cycle, you know, um, you eat very little out in public, but you eat a lot behind closed doors. Did you recognize that you had an eating disorder or were you more in denial? No, when I got to be old enough, let's see, the late, late teens, uh, I actually started to attend Overeaters Anonymous. Now, the group I was in, it was it was not the best. I do believe 12-step can help people. It's the best free therapy ever. Um, I highly recommend it. But I guess the group I was with, they were more concentrated on controlling your intake of food rather than working on the emotions and how to deal with one's emotions and stand up for oneself against, you know, bullies or or narcissists or abusers or whatever. So I didn't do well at that, but I knew I needed help and I was always searching. So I start, yeah, uh, I, in my teens, I realized, wow, this is not normal. This is something I'm doing to cope. No, no, I didn't even think that. I didn't think it was something I did to cope. I, I figured I was flawed. I was broken. And somehow I needed to be fixed through discipline. But when you were 23 years old, uh, you decided to have a weight loss surgery. Did you think that it was the only one solution that you had? Yeah, at that point, um, I had heard of stomach stapling. They did that in the 70s. And a lady friend of my mother had it done. And she always talked about it, how, oh, this person, you know... Um, she stays skinny because she had that stomach stapling and it stayed with me. And I'm like, you know, if I could get my stomach stapled, that's what they called it back then. Um, then if I tried to binge eat, I wouldn't have enough room in my stomach. So I wouldn't be able to eat so much. You have to remember, I was gaining an enormous amount of weight in a short amount of time once I moved out of my parents' house. And I was desperate for some sort of solution. So, yes, I. Uh, this is before the internet. <laughs> God, I was so determined. Oh, my God. I went to the library and I looked it up. I looked in magazines and books and newspapers. And I found um, that they were doing something called the gastric band. Uh, now they call it the, um, the lap band or something. Uh, yeah, I, I actually looked up how to find weight loss surgery for myself. So how did you find it? How did this entire procedure and preparation look like? Uh, a little bit insane. So I, I was living beyond my means in Weehawk in a gorgeous apartment. I drive past it sometimes with a beautiful view of New York. This is the 80s. It was decadent. Uh, I was living with my best friend. He was a waiter at some fancy restaurant. And... Um, we really just couldn't afford to be there, but we managed, we scraped. So I didn't have health insurance. I was working part-time here and there. Uh, not here and there. Now, I remember working seven days a week to support myself. I like, had three part-time jobs, no no benefits. Um, and, of course, I don't think the insurance would have paid for the weight loss surgery back then. So I applied for charity care. I found the man doing the most um, experimental 
It was called um, the Adjustable Gastric Band. They call it the lap band now because they install it laparoscopically. Back then, they made a very long scar, which I still have, right down the middle of my belly. Um, but I, I knew I needed it or I was going to kill myself. I was just going to get so fat that I wouldn't be able to move. So I pursued it. And you know, people are kind of unkind to that style of eating disorder. If you're starving yourself, it's like, oh, the poor dear, she won't eat. But when you're binge eating, it's you're just treated like a, a childish glutton. So uh, he um, he wanted to expect, he, he needed people. He needed people to receive the surgery so he would have, have good numbers. And he didn't really want to take me as a patient. He says, you're going to try to out-eat this surgery. Uh, how are you going to stick with, if you can't stick with the diet, how are you supposed to stick with your post-op uh, diet after the surgery? Well, if I could stick with it, if anybody could stick with a diet, why do they need your stupid surgery? But all right. So <laughs> he, he, he performed it and a lot of it was charity care that I paid for it. My mother helped me pay for it a little bit because she saw how much weight I was gaining. You know, it, it's a it's a backhanded, weird way my mother supports me. You know, she causes the damage, and then she throws money at, at me as a solution so she can look good to other people. Like, well, look what I do for my daughter, all the money I spend. So, yeah, he did it. He installed it, and he had the damn thing so tight, because it was adjustable. You can make the band that's around your stomach tighter or looser. Uh, I, I couldn't even hold water down in the beginning. And uh, I remember when I tried to eat some baby food and it came right back, back up. He laughed at me like, well, there you go. You're not going to you're not going to be able to overeat now. Yeah, he's dead now <laughs> and I'm alive and I'm healthy. So there you go. Not that I wish anybody dead, but, you know, people who have abused you and then you hear that they're doing really crappy or they died. It's like, hmm, oh, well, karma. So the surgery did not solve the problem. Oh, man. Well, I lost 100 pounds in a year. Let's put it that way. I looked gorgeous. Everybody's falling all over themselves, telling me how wonderful I look. And, oh, you're so disciplined. Yeah, disciplined. I threw up three times a day. That's how I lost the weight. I couldn't get any food to go past the band. So I got the satisfaction of being able to eat a lot. And then it would just come shooting right back up, sometimes right out of my nose. Wow. So it was uh, eat, puke, eat, puke. The thing is, you can't do that over and over without consequences. So the band itself started to dig into my stomach. It couldn't be loosened anymore to give me relief. Like, he had to replace it. When he replaced it, it was defective. And now, mind you, I'm still charity care, charity care all over the place. And these were surgeries where he would open me up, full incision surgeries. So I can't even, I'm look, I try to look back at my medical records. Did he gut me open three times or only twice? I don't remember. But, I rem but it failed. Like the band never worked right again. And uh, I gained all the weight back plus uh, 100-something pounds. So basically, you needed to have another surgery so that this gastric band would be removed, right? 
Well, I lived with it for quite a while. I think like 13 years, 17 years. I forgot how long. Um, still not solving my compulsive overeating problem. I don't know that I ever sat down and enjoyed a meal. It was always just to punish myself. Food was something I wasn't allowed to enjoy because I was fat. So I couldn't just sit and taste and savor a meal. I shoveled food in to punish myself for existing. Again, it's an addiction. It's something that I do or people do to relieve themselves from their deeply uncomfortable emotions. Whether it's, it's, it's liquor or heroin, it doesn't matter. Food made me go numb. Well, first it hurt me really bad because it hurts to overeat. It's very painful. And then I get to pass out and not have to feel myself. I was so deeply troubled. But I was still now, because the band wasn't working, gaining and gaining and gaining till I was so heavy there were no scales at the time that could weigh me. I was having trouble walking, breathing. Things were so bad, so I knew I needed help. Uh, the band itself, I could feel the pain every time I ate. I had developed a chronic cough because of the band, the way it was rubbing up against my, my lungs. So I started, once again, searching for help. This time I had the internet. It was slightly easier. This is 2004, 2005, so... It's not the internet we had now, but it was better, you know, certainly better than going uh, to the library, looking through magazines and books. And I started looking, I started looking for doctors who could take the band out because it was hurting me so badly. Most doctors wouldn't even touch me. They're like, no, nah, this is too complicated a situation. You're full of scar tissue and adhesions. Uh, you're type 2 diabetic. You have chronic pneumonia and sleep apnea. You're too high a risk. But I'm a determined person. And when I want something, I keep looking. And I found these doctors over in Ridgewood, a group of doctors. And I found the surgeon, Daniel Davis, a genius and he says, well, why didn't all these other, you know, I, I listed all the names. He says, why didn't they want to help you? I said, well, because they said I was too difficult. He says, oh, we specialize in difficult. I'm like, you're my hero. He says, but, you know, we have to, I, I, I can't, you're too heavy for me to uh, simply remove the band. I, I will convert it to a gastric bypass for you so you can get some relief. I said, fine. What do I care at this point? Fine. And that's how it happened. 2006, he converted the band. He got, he got the band out. It was a very complicated surgery. He, I, I woke up in intensive care. Things were bad. I could have died, but he really um, did what he had to to save my life. Today's episode is brought to you by Restaurant.com. With Restaurant.com, you can save at thousands of restaurants across the country with just a few clicks. Their dining deals range from $5 to $100, never expire, and cost you a fraction of the face value. Dinner has never been easier with Restaurant.com. Use for dine-in, take-out, or delivery. Restaurant.com is offering our listeners 50% off their next purchase by going to www.restaurant.com slash podcast. That's 
www.restaurant.com slash podcast for 50% off your next purchase. Restaurant.com, the best deal every meal. Let me quickly remind you that today's guest is Lisa Sergeis, and we talk about her weight loss journey. After her gastric band was finally removed, the healing process was not an easy ride at all. <laughs> no, it was a miserable, bumpy, painful ride. Uh, so, so right after the surgery, of course, it worked beautifully. He did a beautiful job. But I was in a lot of pain because he had to really scrape out all those adhesions and all those... Uh, scar tissues and I was in a lot of pain there's a video of me on YouTube just sitting on my tub crying it was just awful um, but it did stop me from eating um, I was living on you know teeny tiny little Barbie doll you know portions of food uh, but still not getting the psychological help I needed so you took away my drug of choice and I still had no idea how to help myself to heal my, my heart, soul, and mind. And I became very depressed. Without food to relieve me, I was just stuck with myself, feeling numb, deeply depressed. But the weight was coming off. Slowly, though, at first. And my father, who I guess he meant well, was like, why isn't she losing any weight? And I'm like, he would tell my mother. He wouldn't ask me. He'd ask my mother. Oh, well, I don't know, Shine. I don't know. It's just that I was so heavy you couldn't tell. I was losing weight. And because I could barely walk and breathe, I, I couldn't exercise. But remember now, I'm a determined person. I wanted to be well. I wanted to learn to love life. I wanted to heal. I just didn't know how. So I started searching. And one of the first people I, I was led to was um, a expert in sports psychology at Montclair State University where I was teaching um, and I still teach there uh, Dr. Rob Gilbert he has a success hotline you call it every day he's got a new message uh, look it up Rob Gilbert success hotline <laughs> and I got involved in the motivation crowd now these were all athletes what the hell was I doing with a bunch of athletes but I loved their determination and their winning attitude and all that positivity so I wanted to be part of that, and I took on the commitment of working out six days a week for an hour minimum. Wow, that's a lot from like not being active at all to working out six days a week. It was nuts, but boy, did I feel good. Well, psychologically, I felt good. Uh, physically, I felt really tired. <laughs> Some people are just not athletes, and I was trying to work out like one. But, hey, the weight fell off me. Everybody's cheering me on. It shut my father up, you know. And uh, I started to blog about it. I'm like, I'm, I want credit. People are going to tell me that that um, weight loss surgery is the easy way out, and I'll be damned. I'm going to show them it's not. You need to change your whole blah, blah, blah. I had a mission, and I did, and I blogged every day about it. And that's, that's what became the book eventually, Diary of a Fat Girl. Uh, my first year after weight loss surgery turned into that book. And the determination it took to become um, 
acceptably thinner. I was still chubby, but, you know, I wasn't uh, as heavy as I was. So I took off, what, 120 pounds the first year, 20 pounds the next year. And then I started to gain the weight back. Why? Still didn't fix my head. Still didn't fix the emotional reasons for why I was overeating in the first place. And these surgeries don't last. You stretch your, your stomach pouch out. Even if it's the gastric sleeve, everybody's getting the sleeve. You, you can out-eat that too. And so here I am again, desperate. Like, now what? How am I going to help myself? But you know how I am. I am determined. So I finally found the right set of people who understood that healing from an addiction is about radical self-acceptance, self-kindness, self-care, forgiveness of emotions, and stop taking the blame for every uh, pain that one feels in life. And... I got, I flipped it around and the weight started coming back off again. And as of today, I'm at the lowest weight that I was right after the gastric bypass. Congratulations. <laughs> well, thanks. What's more important to me though? I mean, I'm still fat. Like, hey, I go to the doctor and they're still like, well, gee, have you followed up with your surgeon about your gastric bypass surgery? And I want to just scream. I'm mentally healthy now. I'm emotionally healthy now. Uh, I can move around now. I enjoy my food now. I'm making peace with nourishing myself. That's the win. It's not the weight. It's it's the it's the attitude and the mental health. So was it that time when you finally came to terms that your binge eating disorder was so connected to your childhood trauma? Yes, yeah, so the, the childhood trauma, of course, sets you up. That's you, you, you have PTSD, and that is definitely part of it. But as you grow up, if you don't know how to feel your feelings and tolerate your feelings and not go blaming yourself for how you feel, it, what good is it? So um, the binge eating disorder was an inability to just be with myself and love myself and nourish myself in a calm and relaxed way. So food was still always a way to escape feelings. It's a way to punish myself and then go, go numb pain and then pass out. And how do you get off that wheel? Well, you have to learn to love yourself and that, you know, it sounds so cliche. Oh, I learned to love myself, but really, you have to. And if you don't, you will fail at whatever wellness endeavor you attempt. So you need to find the right kind of coach or therapist or what, whatever it is that's going to work for you. Guru, you find the teacher or, or the mental health expert that can safely guide you through learning to love yourself and learning to feel your feelings without trying to shut them off. So what was the most important aspect to your transformation? What has helped you the most to deal with uh, your eating disorder and depression? I would say it's a mental health writer, 
Um, she only has a master's degree and she's not licensed to practice what she, she's a writer. She's a researcher and um, I guess you could call her a coach. Uh, her name is Shari Schreiber. Now she's, she's written her book. Um, Do you need to be loved or love to be needed? I think that's what she called her book, but I was reading her articles for free online I managed to get a few sessions out of her. She was very expensive, and she wouldn't take me on as a as a client uh, because she's like, you can't afford it. This is just more self-destructive behavior. Stop trying to, you know. Um, but she, she talked to me personally enough times. She made enough videos and articles that I could self-teach. Again, me pulling myself up from my bootstraps, but with a good teacher. Um and using her methods, and of course another writer, another one with with no um, credentials as a as a psychotherapist, but her name is Lisa Romano. She's um she writes about surviving narcissistic abuse and surviving adult children of alcoholics. Uh, I studied narcissism online with. Uh, just by watching his YouTube, uh, Dr. Sam Vaknin, he's an expert in narcissistic personality disorder. And I recognized, oh my God, there's my mother. And borderline personality disorder and looking up all these mood disorders to see that, wait, my mother was mentally ill. She had a terrible mood disorder that made her a cruel monster. And I was the victim of that. Now I'm not saying, oh, find someone to blame. What I'm saying is stop blaming yourself and realize that you had really messed up circumstances. If you're an adult child of an alcoholic or an addict or a mood disordered parent, uh, it's only natural to turn the blame around on when you're, on yourself when you're real young. You say, well, you know, I, I must deserve this because you can't blame your parent. It's like it's too painful for a child to say there's something messed up about mommy you can't. They're God to you. So you blame yourself. It's um, a, a autoplastic defense mechanism, I believe, where you, where you turn everything in on yourself. And it's just a, a hotbed for creating addiction. So the more I understood what was happening, the more I could take all this emotional burden off myself and start saying to myself, Lisa, you're such a good girl. Now I'm in my 50s. I'm 55. <laughs> so it's weird to call oneself, oh, you're such a good girl. But you have to reparent yourself. It was essential that I learn how to tell myself that I am good and worthy and I don't deserve to suffer and I did my best. And this has to happen all the time, every day. And that's hard. But that's what's healing me. I also want to talk about your vlog on YouTube. Why did you decide to speak about your weight loss journey, uh, your depression, eating disorder so publicly? You wrote a book, you started your vlog. I mean, social media can be very, very toxic place as well, and it can bring you down. Well, I sure got my share of haters and people saying terrible things to me and making fun of me. And uh, sometimes I would argue, but then I learned, I'm like, no. I'm just going to block them. And so that's what I did. Anybody who came out of the woodwork to say something terrible to me, block, report, block, delete. 
until I was I was left with only people who were inspired by me, who supported me, who were saying, oh, my God, me too. I was doing hashtag me too before the me too movement because it was about identifying people who were abusing and uh, people would find me and say, oh, my God, your mother sounds just like mine or, oh, my God, I, I had the surgery too and I was mistreated and, oh, my God, me too. So I focus more on the people who need me and uh, and um, who support me. Uh, the blog, it kept it up for almost 10 years. I'm working on my second book just based on the blogs I wrote. This one's called From Wheelchair to Warrior. And it's about the journey of having my knee replacements. Oh, that's going to be so good. <laughs> can, can you tell a little bit about your knee replacements as well? Oh, wow. What a journey that was. So... Um, I inherited a pretty severe osteoarthritis. Both my parents had it, have it. They're, my parents are alive. Um, and being extremely heavy for a very long time. Uh, and when your bones are set up a certain way, I, you know, I inherited that. Uh, I became very bow-legged. And the misalignment of my knees wore out my cartilage on both knees. So here I am with severely painful knees to the point where I, I couldn't walk anymore. And it wasn't like, oh, because I was just so heavy. I had lost the weight. I couldn't walk because of the pain. So um, I had no health insurance at the time. So I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I'm telling you after the fact that this is what it was. Oh, well, it was osteoarthritis, bow-leggedness, worn-out cartilage. I thought I just ruptured my knee somehow. So here I am on crutches or in a wheelchair, depending on how far I had to walk, not knowing what was going on. Just my knees hurt. So the, the, the next book, the next story is about this journey where I hop from healer to healer, from guru to miracle worker to holistic healer, looking for answers and getting none until I finally just broke down and prayed. And once in a while, I'll have these moments in my life where I hear a voice clearly, clearly like I'm being led. And I said, God, I think it was specifically to Jesus I prayed. Uh, I said, please guide me. Please guide me. Show me what I have to do. And clear as day, he said, find a surgeon. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that, that I'll do it, Lord. And uh, so the, the journey now is about, with no health insurance, how do you find the best surgeon in the area, uh, earn the money for radical, this radical surgery, uh, and then recover from it and get my life back and be able to walk? And, of course, um, it was a, a year after this, the knee replacements. Um, there I was walking around Disney World in Florida. But at some point in your life, you didn't want to live any longer and you were praying to die. What was the situation and how did you bounce back from it? I would say spirituality. I remember I was in the hospital. This is before the, when I was still super heavy, before the gastric bypass reversal thing. Um, I developed a form of sepsis. I had open sores all over my body. My type 2 diabetes was completely out of control. I had lost the ability to heal. Uh, I was in desperate pain. Um, it was really bad. 
and I was lying in bed. And there I was in this isolated room because if anybody came near me and coughed on me, you know, it could make me sick. It would get into my open source. Uh, and I just started to cry. I was exhausted. And I prayed and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. Everything I try to do to help myself, I am still desperately fat, desperately depressed. This type 2 diabetes will probably kill me. I think I want to check out. I think I want to die tonight in my sleep. But I don't want to decide that right this second. So if I do die, you have to take me. You, you have to take my soul because I cannot endure the suffering. But if I decide to live, you're going to help me. You're going to send me all the right people, all the right situations to get me well and get me walking and get me healthy again. I'll let you know my decision in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you got a boss God around her. He's not going to give you what you want. So I wake up in the morning, you know, and I'm thinking about, oh, God, who's going to take care of my cats? <laughs> and then I thought, well, I feel bad for my friends. I think they would be really sad if I died. They might blame themselves or something. No, I'll, I'll stick around. I'm going to stick around. I'm going to tough it out. I remember what it's like to feel joyful. I I know that there's a life without this desperate pain. I'm going to I'm going to fight for it. And I just made a decision. And you did. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I I assume you get a lot of questions from people who are in a very maybe similar situation as you were and who are struggling with eating disorders, but also psychological traumas. What kind of advice do you give? How do you help people who are struggling? Well, you have to find help, but it has to be the right help. So depending on their financial situation, hey, if you can afford therapy, please go find yourself a good therapist. Somebody who will listen to you, who will not judge you, who will coach you through learning to be kind to yourself and to believe that you're worth your own kindness. Not everybody can afford therapy. So they I mean they go between a hundred and three hundred dollars an hour. Uh, and not everybody has insurance. So I could also direct people. I'm like, okay, um, if you are a child. Or, or not even a child of, but if you have been in a relationship, whether it's a parent, a lover, or whatever, or a family member who is a drug addict, an abuser, an alcoholic, then you go to Al-Anon. It's not Alcoholics Anonymous. It's Al-Anon. It's for family members of addicts. And you will get the best free therapy I know. Their 12-step program is phenomenal. Maybe they don't like going out in public to talk, and then I'll direct them on the internet. I'm like, okay, you're going to use social media to, do, to cement certain ideas in your head, to stop blaming yourself, start loving yourself, and to feel better. And I'll suggest a bunch of people for them that they need to follow and look at their, their stuff every day until it overrides the faulty programming that's causing them to blame themselves for their own pain. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, you have been through a lot. How would you say, where are you at today? Are you still on your journey to healing, still working on your weight loss? Well, this week's project is I'm going to have my living room painted. And because I have a lot of stuff, I am the tchotchke queen. Um, 
I have to really believe that having beautiful surroundings is worth the trouble. I have to be humble and accept help from people. That's very hard to believe you're worth the help of other people. So it's that, you know, the day-to-day of those kind of things. Weight loss, I don't care anymore. And the less I care, the more my body just kind of falls into place. I'm still on a very slow but steady losing streak. I'm eating to take care of my type 2 diabetes, and that happens to be a high-protein Diet and high protein diets tend to help you lose weight, but I don't care about that. What I care about is being happy and healthy and able to move, um, move enough that I can enjoy the things that I like to do. So uh, I have made peace with food. I eat whatever I want, whenever I want. It, it some call it intuitive eating. But it's more listening to what your body needs at the moment. And people say, oh, well, how do you not just eat 10 boxes of devil dogs? Because nobody wants 10 boxes of devil dogs. Twinkies, cakes. You might think that in the beginning when you're trying to say all food is the same, all food is morally neutral or morally equal. You might want to do that, but that doesn't last. Nobody wants that sugar rush. You want actually a balanced plate healthy food that's satisfying and tasty and so I got to that point where I don't even what have I eaten today I've nibbled a little bit of cheese (laughs) I haven't been hungry yet so I'm not gonna force myself to eat and you know when it's time for a meal later I I like tasty protein heavy foods I don't like the way I feel when I eat bread so I don't eat it I might have a little rice, a little here and there, but I basically stick to a high-protein diet because I like the way I feel when I eat that way. And coming to that kind of peace with food has taken all my life. Thank you to Lisa Sergeis for sharing her story. For more information, visit iBounceBag.net and find a blog post about Lisa. This is all what I have prepared for you for today. Our next episode is going to be in two weeks. The biggest piece of ableism I've personally encountered and a lot of people who can pass for normal is invalidating us saying, you don't seem autistic. I don't believe you're autistic. It's part of the theatrics. Like I put in to get that result where someone feels entitled to just dismiss me like that. I have to put in a lot more effort than I appear to be putting in. It takes a lot of practice and understanding the social routines to reduce the amount of emotional labor that's required. For another story, tune in to the I Bounce Back podcast on the 21st of October. I'll meet you then. Bye.